But, you know, Kim Kardashian is probably the most obvious example of someone who had to pay real money and real prices. It wasn't just simply uh, an injunction to stop her from making the endorsement. She had to pay real money to, to kind of uh, get out from under the liability that she potentially created. Hi, you're listening to Disputed, a Norton Rose Fulbright podcast. In this episode, we're talking with Aaron Brown and Vic Doman about deceptive marketing practices, and in particular, misleading advertising by influencers on social media. Advertising has come a long way since the days of driving down the highway and seeing billboards. Influencer advertising is quickly becoming one of the most pervasive and effective forms of marketing out there. The Canadian Competition Bureau and the U.S. Federal Trade Commission are concerned with ensuring that posts by influencers are not misleading, including as to whether they have a connection with the brand in question. Aaron and Vic provide us with their takes on key areas that regulators are concerned with, penalties for influencers who engage in misleading practices like not disclosing brand connections, and also talk about regulatory similarities and differences in the U.S. and Canada. And of course, they also share best practices for influencers and companies alike. Aaron Brown is a senior associate in our Ottawa office whose practice focuses on a wide variety of regulatory issues, including competition, antitrust law, international trade, economic sanctions, and export controls, as well as customs and procurement. And she's an avid consumer of social media herself. Vic Doman is a partner in our Washington, D.C. office, a government and antitrust investigations and prosecutions lawyer. As a former enforcer, Vic has a unique perspective into the priorities of government agencies, as well as the challenges clients may encounter. Regarded as a top three U.S. antitrust enforcer, Vic previously worked for the Tennessee Attorney General's Office, where he served as its senior antitrust counsel. And if you're looking for more information, check out our episode notes, where we've linked to the FTC's guidelines for social media influencers and to the Competition Bureau's guidelines for influencer marketing. In fact, In March 2023, after this episode was recorded, the FTC issued orders to social media and video streaming platforms regarding their efforts to address the skyrocketing claims of fraud by consumers in this space. The commission also made clear that it is concerned with ensuring social media and video streaming platforms are taking measures to ensure that consumers are able to more easily identify advertising as such, which is a key theme of the discussion in this podcast. We hope you enjoy. Erin, Vic, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having us. No, my pleasure. It's great to be here. Okay, let's start off high-level basics. Why listeners should need to pay attention to this episode. Can you explain to us what is influencer marketing and why it's caught regulators' attention in the recent years? Absolutely. So, I I mean, I think that people should be listening because uh, influencer marketing is, in my opinion, at least as a consumer, one of the most pervasive forms of marketing that has ever existed. And when I think about this, you know, I often think about driving, you know, down the highway or, you know, this is a across border panels, so we'll say the freeway, I guess, Vic, driving down the highway or the freeway, you see that big billboard for, um, a, uh, you know, a pop or a soda. I have never seen that billboard and then driven directly to the corner store to purchase the, you know, the pop that was advertised there. Uh, 
But on social media, I do the equivalent all the time, right? I see an influencer uh, on any of the social media platforms that we think of, uh, you know, typically we're thinking Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, but of course, new uh, platforms are popping up all the time. Us, um, you know, non-Gen Zers can't keep up with all the new platforms, but uh, we see, uh, you know, we see this happen all the time where an influencer that we follow posts a uh, a recommendation of a product and then uh, before we know it it's click click add to cart and it's on my way to to my house before before I even really think about what I've what I've done right so there are five things week. that I bought this week just <laughs> exactly so so you're you're a perfect uh um example of this trend Elsa and so this is just such a pervasive form of marketing in my opinion it is it is such an effective form of marketing. So I think it's really interesting, you know, if you're listening either as a consumer uh, to be aware of these things that are going on or as a brand that is marketing to consumers through social media channels, this is a really relevant area uh, to be considering and to be seized of. And, uh, you know, one of the the things that I think is, is the most interesting from a competition law perspective is that we've long talked about misleading advertising as an area that our regulators are seized of, right? If, if an ad is misleading, is it uh, providing a representation to consumers that is inaccurate that we're concerned about? But when we, when we get to influencer marketing, we actually have a whole other threshold question of misleading advertising before we get it, even get into the actual nature of the advertisement itself. And that threshold question is, is it even clear that we're consuming an advertisement? So if I go back to my billboard example, we all know when we see a billboard that we are a we are the target of a paid advertisement that a company or an organization has paid to put that advertisement in front of us. That's not always that line is being blurred on social media. We're not always sure is this a bona fide legitimate product endorsement by somebody that I trust that has used this product that thinks it works great. And I'm buying this product based on their good faith, the same way that I would a friend recommends a product to me. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not sure if that's the case, or if they're being paid to rep to represent that product to us to, to promote that product to us. And if they're getting paid, you know, there's a whole range of, of potentials there is it that they're getting a kickback if I purchase the product, is it that they got the product for free and they don't want to, you know, stop that that sugar train from a brand that's sending free products out? Or is it that it, you know, it is a fully paid advertisement the same way as that billboard? So it's a pervasive form of advertising that consumers and brands need to be seized of. And it's also uh, a really interesting legal area that is emerging when we're thinking about misleading advertising. Mm -hmm. Yeah, gone are the days of the kind of madman and get mad, mad, <laughs> mad men <laughs> engaging a kind of commercial advertising agency that is presumably more up to speed on the regulations and the laws that govern what they can and can't do. She said this is not just pervasive in the amount of people that it reaches, but it's also the type of people who are advertising is is way more diverse, and it, it's 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 presumably a bit of a not just a nightmare for uh, consumers and brands, but also for regulators as well in trying to monitor and think about how to manage this. 
No, and just and just building on what Aaron said, I mean, we know that that social influencers, social media influencers now have, have reached an all new high level just because Netflix has created a show about it, right? Emily in Paris is all about influencer. <laughs> I mean, if there's if there's anything else that tells you that influencers are now prime time, that's the case. I think if you also ride on a ride on a train, ride on a bus, ride on a plane, everyone has their phones open and they're on any one of the number of social media platforms. And I know none of us would ever do this, but if you happen to peek across the aisle, you can notice people scrolling through and half of the time they're looking at videos, the other half of the time they're seeing advertisements from those platforms. So it is so pervasive in just daily life, much more than say the billboard on the side of the road or the television with the periodic advertisements. Now, as you scroll through your phone, it's coming to you constantly. It's really almost difficult to get away from it. And with that, there really are probably some new, uh, I guess, oversight that's necessary from the agencies or the feeling both in the agencies that we should have more oversight over uh, social uh, social influencers, social media influencers. I always say as well, it's not necessarily a, a bad thing, right? It's actually quite helpful having all these products, like your attention directed to products that you're interested in and see somebody that you already follow or that you're already a fan of try something out before you buy it. that in itself is not is not necessarily unhelpful um so i think we need to um still keep in mind that this this has potential to be a very uh valuable uh, advancement progress in the digital economy but it's just how it's managed and how it's regulated and and to ensure that the risks to consumers are minimized so i think with that erin alluded already to um certain competition laws and regulations in place already um can you outline um or do kind of compare and contrast the legal landscape across the us and canada um in particular looking at the legal frameworks through which regulators are um looking at online advertising and digital commercial activity Let's talk a little bit about the U.S. just to get started. And, and you know, it's certainly similar in Canada. I know Eric can speak to that, too. But here in the States, the Federal Trade Commission is the agency with uh, with the, the majority of, uh, of enforcement authority over consumer protection violations. Right. And so under the FTC Act, there are various things. Uh, that fall into into that that trap. And and so what you'll typically see is when there is any attempt to unfairly influence or deceive someone, then the Federal Trade Commission will probably step in and say, wait a minute, we've got we've got an issue here. And through that, what they've done is they've they've issued a number of guidelines and rules that try to help not only consumers, but also the advertisers themselves and anyone else who might think about giving an advertisement or being an influencer of some sort. And so thankfully for for I think people on all sides of the of this uh, uh, of the platforms themselves, the FTC has actually put out some very handy guidelines that can help the average influencer or the average advertiser understand exactly what's what's okay and what's not okay and what should or what might subject you to some level of penalty. And you know, if you take a quick look on their website, you can actually find this very quickly. You do a do a quick Google search, hey, to say it, and you can find it just like that. But but I think that uh, you know one of the things to consider is that use some common sense. Use some common sense. If you're if you're a social media influencer, think about exactly what you're saying and why. And so the FTC has really made it clear that, for example, if you're getting paid for it, you need to let people know about it. If you haven't used the product, you probably shouldn't be making statements about how wonderful and terrific it is. Uh, but if you have used the product, be honest and tell the truth about what you feel about it. I mean, these kinds of, of influences have gone back 
you know, for hundreds of years, it's just that on the social media platforms now, it's very, very different. And I think that, you know, I in the U.S., and I'm sure in Canada, too, I mean, the old snake oil salesman has always been the example, right? There's someone who has a product that they're promoting that they don't even think probably works the way it should, but they sure are going to tell you how wonderful it is because they're getting paid to do it. And with that, there are certain dangers that consumers unwittingly or unknowingly may step into, and the FTC wants to make sure that everyone knows the ground rules before you step into that world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like it's it's there's a lot of similarities to the the landscape in Canada. In Canada, really, we think in terms of misleading advertising, we're, we're normally looking at the Competition Act, which uh, is enforced by the Competition Bureau. And similarly, the Competition Bureau in Canada has uh, released its own influencer marketing guidelines. And it, it's really sort of like that same, um, you know, common sense perspective that Vic was talking about. It's really kind of like that gut, that gut reaction test, right? So specifically what the Canadian Competition Bureau has really focused on is disclosing all material connections is the way that they put it. And so if you have any type, uh, you know, if the influencer has any type of material connection with a brand, that needs to be disclosed to consumers, to followers, subscribers, whatever the, you know, to consumers, essentially. So that could look like a lot of different things, that that material connection. It can be anything from you know, a personal or a family relationship with the brand, could be free uh, event tickets, free trips. It could be discounted products or free products or services. Um, you know, we, it, it seems brands send a lot of free products to influencers to get them to, you know, to encourage them to post about it. So if an influencer even is just getting free or heavily discounted products from a brand, you know, discounts outside the regular discounts that consumers would get, that is a material connection to a brand uh, as far as the bureau is concerned. And then, of course, any money. Uh, that's paid. So if it's a full on, uh, you know, brand partnership with paid sponsored content where, you know, it's more similar to our billboard example where you have a photo shoot and all of that, you know, all, everything that goes along with that. And it's really a, you know, a monetary advertisement opportunity. That's obviously a material connection and then commissions as well. So, uh, you know, if you are going to get a cut of the, the the uh you know the pie every time a consumer is clicking on that link on your story and you know as Elsa said she purchased some you know five things in the last week well did the did the influencers that posted those links get a cut of Elsa's um you know purchases so that's a that's a material connection as far as the bureau is concerned as well and there's a couple you know the, the bureau has gone a little bit more in detail i mean it's not incredibly detailed but it does provide some high level guidance on what it would like to see in terms of what these disclosures of material connections look like so they want these disclosures to be visible. And so, you know, anybody who's been on Instagram recently knows that, you know, some influencers might post, you know, 15 or 50 hashtags on a on a static post. You can't just have one hashtag ad buried at the very end of that, you know, sequence of 50 hashtags. That's not going to be visible and uh, and clear. It should be prominent. Um, you know, that the competition bureau specifically says it, it can't be just, you know, one in a long caption, a group of hashtags. Um, it needs to be visible on all devices. Specifically, they would say without having to click or tap a button to expand the post. And, you know, as Vic was saying, I think there's a, there's a common sense or a gut 
uh, a gut test here. As we see the platforms and the nature of platforms start to evolve, we need to reconsider what a prominent and visible disclosure is. So on a static story, or sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, a static post on Instagram, which used to be the norm, what is clear and visible in that context might be very different different from what's clear and visible now when really stories have taken off on Instagram. And that, uh, you know, that gets into some of the other point, which is that uh, it should be, the, the disclosure should not be separated from the, uh, the content. So if you have a story that spans three or four different slides and you just put ad on the first one, but it's open to your followers or to consumers to share that those other stories, that other content that doesn't have the disclosure, then and that you know is shared a lot of times on social media, and you lose the initial disclosure, that can become a problem as well. So it's really that gut check, and uh, you know making sure that the disclosures are clear, contextually appropriate, and as Vic said, really thinking about it from a common sense perspective. What would a consumer who's viewing this? Uh, post or this, you know, YouTube video, et cetera, think is my connection to this brand. Yeah. And picking up on that too, in the U.S., I, I think it, it's, it's, it's important to recognize that the Federal Trade Commission uses the same term, right? Material connection. That is it. And, and I think that that's really what you have to keep in mind. One of the things that, that Aaron was touching on too is that, you know, if you're an influencer, just don't assume that your followers already know about your brand relationship just because they may think you work for a certain brand doesn't mean they have to and that doesn't get you off the hook in trying to issue that disclosure right you cannot assume that your that your folks already know it and second uh you know even if you think you're as an influencer that your opinion is kind of unbiased you still have to make the disclosure right you just can't say well i'm i'm completely objective and i just think it's the best product in the world so i'm going to use it anyway and because it's the best product i don't need to tell my consumers that i've gotten paid to promote it that's not good enough you actually do have to disclose that relationship too and i think that's something very important to, to keep in mind you may know everything about the product your consumers don't they're looking at you for some advice and you do need to to really let them know that in fact you have received some kind of material, you have some material connection to that product, not just simply you picked it up off the shelf and think it's wonderful. It's interesting. It, it seems like these regulations address at least two things, two sort of principal concepts. One is making sure that influencer marketing is regulated like any other advertising and marketing would, like a subway commercial or a movie trailer or you know commercials between um, between segments on TV. Um, so that's one piece of it. And then the other piece is, is getting over this idea that people on social media might be deceived into thinking that someone, you know, that they follow who's holding a product just so and going on about its virtues isn't doing that for compensation, is doing that because they just genuinely believe that it's valuable. And it, it strikes me that it has the effect or potentially has the effect of just making all influencer type marketing very much consistent with sort of traditional endorsement deal style marketing where everyone is supposed to be completely in on the joke that of course you're being paid to do this of course this is a commercial thing and it has nothing to do with your genuine love of the product but i guess that's okay one just wonders whether it defeats the purpose to some extent of so you know, so-called influencer marketing in the first place but that's more of a commercial question and a speculative one than anything legal yeah, but I think your point and uh, touching, you know, and I was I had some similar thoughts uh, 
coming from what Vic was saying is I, I think, you know, we, we sort of think about it in two different ways, right? Is I think the the new aspect here with influencer marketing is we have this threshold test of whether it's clear that it's even an advertisement to begin with. And then we still have the normal misleading advertising uh is the content misleading? So if I, you know, if I'm an influencer and I'm promoting a skincare product and I say this skincare product is revolutionary, it will make all of your acne or your blemishes disappear for sure in, uh, you know, a matter of days. Well, that is, you know, even if I've made clear that I, you know, have a material connection to the brand and I've disclosed that, we still have the the question of the content of my actual advertisement. And of course, you know, as with all advertised, you know, as as with the normal course of misleading advertisement, the uh, the um, you know the advertisement, if you're if you're making performance claims, for example, it needs to be based on adequate adequate and proper tests, and all of those sort of normal rules apply uh, to the actual content of the advertisement. But I think you're right, Andrew. I think we're moving from a, a space or a time when people you know followed these lifestyle influencers and really thought that they were just sort of giving um, these unbiased, you know, um, genuine, well, I don't want to say not genuine, but but unbiased or, you know, just objective, the, the type objective, just like yeah. the type of recommendation that your best friend would give you after they used a product that they liked, you know, because we have that's to recognize a real, that's a real category, right? Like that's a real online influencer category, which is YouTube reviews of of video games, yeah. or skin products, or clothing lines, or anything—that's a real thing that exists. And differentiating between that and the one that's got a spawn con tag at the bottom yeah. is actually pretty subtle to do. Right, and that's why that disclosure of the material connection is so important because there still are people out there who who may be making uh, YouTube videos. Uh, reviewing a bunch of power tools and they're just going to the store and buying those power tools and trying each of them and giving you their unbiased opinion. Um, but if you don't have that, uh, material disclosure for the other types of advertisements, then, you know, that's where it starts to muddy the waters. I'm not really sure what the YouTube videos on power tools are about. That's, that's not where I typically spend my social media time. I can tell you a lot about the fashion, uh, influencers on Instagram personally. I think the um, I I actually do use YouTube reviews a lot, particularly for board games. Actually, <laughs> that's my tip. <laughs> that's another conversation, Elsa. I know. Um, the uh, where it seems to me that so much of the risk is, particularly when thinking of, of for brands in particular, is that we're relying on the judgment of individual influencers here to determine, you know, is this a material connection? Have I made a sufficient disclosure? Uh, and I think that is that is particularly from a brand's perspective how do you know say i'm making the right judgment call they're not well versed in what constitutes material connection they're not well versed in what constitutes sufficient disclosure for misleading for advertising law purposes so um whose responsibility is it to educate the influencers on the requirements and by extension where does the liability fall with that responsibility I definitely don't think that brands should just be relying on influencers to make these determinations. Uh, I, I think brands need to be taking an active role in shaping this. So uh, for brands that are involved in social media uh, marketing, um, 
that work with influencers, particularly consumer facing companies, I think, you know, they, this is the time, if not already, to develop and maintain those influencer marketing policies and guidelines, work those into your contracts with influencers. Uh, when you, uh, you know, to the extent that you are sending out free products or heavily discounted products or loaned products, uh, include, you know, if you're including a specific hashtag that you would like them to use, make sure that the, the guidelines are clear there, that you expect them to be disclosing that this product was provided for free or for a discounted rate, whatever the case may be, you know, if you're sending free products, include an insert with exactly, you know, the guidelines to the influencer about how you want to see that represented on social media, that you want that disclosure to be clear. To the extent that you're working with marketing companies or with influencers directly, make sure that that's clear in their contracts, what you expect of them in terms of the clarity of their posts, the clarity of those um, disclosures of material connections. Send them reminders about that. Send them updates every time you update your policy. And then a big part of this as well is going to be track that. Make sure that um, you are then going back and checking what is being posted by influencers that you work with or by, uh, you know, Brands may want to be uh, searching via, you know, common hashtags that are used with their brand to take a look at how this is actually playing out on social media. Is it clear? Uh, try to put those objective glasses on and say, okay, if I'm the consumer that doesn't know, that doesn't have the details of this relationship, can I discern from what's available on social media that this product was free or discounted or borrowed or that the event tickets were given freely or that this is a, a you know, a paid sponsorship? Um, so I think I think companies need to be uh, companies in the influencer marketing space um, and companies in you know consumer products need to be taking an active role on this. They cannot and should not be relying on uh, influencers to, uh, you know, to make sure that they that that this, you know, that there's no compliance risks here. Uh, influencers come in all different shapes and sizes. There's many, many very sophisticated influencers that may have their own legal teams that are, you know, seized of these issues that, uh, you know, may regularly make connections very, very clear. Um, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a spectrum right now where uh, other influencers that are just entering the space may not know these rules yet. Hopefully they're listening to this podcast and they will know the rules soon. Uh, but I, I think brands need to be taking the bull by the horn. Yeah. And just to, and just to kind of build on that, I think to, to go to your question too, Elsa, is that, you know, I think when it comes to who might be responsible or liable, I think it, it could be the, you know, the producer of the product. It could be the influencer and it could be the platform and all of the above. I think that that's the big thing. So this responsibility really falls on everyone. And, and I, I do think that, yeah, as Aaron said, some influencers wouldn't know this more. The sophisticated ones certainly do, and they make sure it's on there. But some of the tech platforms themselves have taken, you know, kind of this uh, 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 this to heart as well. And so, for example, Instagram, you know, if you're on Instagram, you're going to see something like paid partnership with. I mean, they, some of the tech platforms have tried to get out in front of this, too, because they recognize that they could be held responsible as well. And they're trying to avoid that as much as they can. They're they're in the crosshairs for so many other things that if this is one less thing they have to worry about, they'll be happy. But as I said, to answer your question, I think everyone in that uh, chain of delivering that message could potentially be liable, uh, at least as far as the FTC is concerned. And I'm sure in Canada as well, competition authority. <laughs> so, but Nick, that's a perfect jumping off point to talk about consequences, right? What are the consequences if you're an influencer 
or you're a platform or you're a consumer packaged goods or any other developer, seller, maker of something that's going to try to disseminate it through influencer marketing, what are the consequences of a footfall here or worse than a footfall? What's going to happen? In the U.S., of course, you know, there, there are all kinds of things. And, and one thing we haven't really mentioned yet is that, you know, we've mentioned the Federal Trade Commission, but there are other uh, agencies that can get involved as well. For example, the SEC, you know, when you uh, when you have some kind of violation, for example, in the crypto world, and Kim Kardashian was a perfect example of this. She uh, she was advertising without revealing, you know, the fact that she had been paid by by the cryptocurrency uh, firm to to represent them or to to promote them, and so she was fined 1.26 million dollars. Plus, she had to disgorge any profit she made, plus interest, and she had to cooperate in an ongoing uh, investigation. So it's not just the Federal Trade Commission, which typically would issue some kind of injunction or penalty for this. And that's that's really the the, the extent of their authority. Uh, but it's other agencies as well that have real hammers to really drop on an influencer or someone such as a Kim Kardashian. You know, I think, you know, crypto is probably the, the the best example now because, you know, you've had people like Tom Brady and LeBron James and Matt Damon and Larry David all doing ads for cryptocurrency. And we see what can happen with that, right? I mean, I guess Tom was doing something for FTX and we know, we know what's happened, what's happened there. But I, and you've kind of seen a, a quieting of those. I don't know if we see quite as many of those right now in the crypto world, but you know, Kim Kardashian is probably the most obvious example of someone who had to pay real money and real prices. It wasn't just simply uh, an injunction to stop her from making the endorsement. She had to pay real money to, to kind of uh, get out from under the liability that she potentially created. Yeah, and I think we're going to, you know, we certainly have the potential for big money to be on the line in Canada as well. Actually, there are fairly recent changes to the Competition Act that came into effect last June that actually increased the fines and penalties, including for deceptive marketing practices. So, you know, we now have maximum penalties that range in uh, in the range of $750,000 for uh, individuals, a million dollars for subsequent violations and uh, sorry, uh, it's the greater of $750,000 or a million dollars for each subsequent violation or and three times the value of the benefit derived from the de deceptive conduct if that amount could be reasonably determined. Um, and then, you know, the maximum penalty for corporations, we see a maximum of $10 million or $15 million for each subsequent violation and three times the value of the benefit obtained from the deceptive conduct. Uh, and if that amount cannot be reasonably determined, the maximum penalty is 3% of annual worldwide gross revenues. So, you know, there's some pretty big dollars on the line here. Uh, previously, before the, these changes to the law, uh, penalties were capped for corporations at, uh, at $10 million. But we're certainly seeing uh, at least the ability to have uh, some pretty significant teeth come into, uh, you know, to help to help, uh, you know, the Competition Bureau enforce misleading advertising, including in the social media space. And, you know, one thing I haven't mentioned, too, which I should have given given, uh, you know, my past is that in the U.S., in addition to the Federal Trade Commission, we also have the state's attorneys general. And so all of the state AGs also have typically they have a, a Deceptive Trade Practices Act, too. It's kind of a mini FTC act. And under all of those in different states, there are all kinds of different penalties ranging from, say, you know, $1,200 per violation all the way up to a million dollars per violation. And what's a violation? Is it is it every single time that your post is viewed by a consumer in California or in New York or in Florida or in Texas? 
or is it just you know once you did it once you're done? But that's that's another another addition to all of this. We really focus on the FTC, who's kind of leading all this. But every state has a consumer protection law too. And if, for example, California, New York decide to join the Federal Trade Commission, which they do sometimes in an action, you could see additional penalties and fines, which vary wildly from state to state. And it's it's just something that uh, that you don't want to forget as the states continue to become more and more active in this world. I think that point touches on a, uh, another point about uh, jurisdiction and these these issues and these claims, because this is online, it's pervasive, it's global, it's everywhere. And I think that is something that is um, particularly important for brands and influencers to be aware of, is that you could be facing regulatory action and civil claims in multiple jurisdictions. So say, for example, you, you're, um, we, we take the example of an Ontario incorporated company an influencer that's based in um let's say california and the audience or perhaps a consumer buys a product from that company marketed by a california influencer but the consumer themselves is based in in england you're potentially engaging three different or maybe even four if you want to add federal on top of state jurisdictions there and who knows how many regulators and then on top of that you've got the product the nature of the product itself um influencing who the regulator might be and um, so for example even it's and i think in that situation people might not actually be aware of um the 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 types of uh, laws and regulations that that can engage and, and the securities is, is an example with bitcoin and um the, the whole debate around to what extent a cryptocurrency is a security in itself and the extent to which it engages the sec but also something like even a skincare product might attract the attention of the fda for example and i don't think that's something that that individual influencers who aren't legally trained in most cases would be aware of yeah, I think there's certainly a lot to, to unpack there, Ailsa. And it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, skincare products and that that gets me thinking about health products. Uh, and certainly, you know, health claims have been something in Canada that are especially sensitive, um, particularly because, you know, that's a heavily regulated area, um, you know, with Health Canada involved. Uh, and during COVID-19, the, the Competition Bureau worked closely with Health Canada, for example, to crack down on unlicensed and unsubstantiated claims relating to COVID-19 prevention and treatment. So you have, you know, some specific dynamics there uh, around the healthcare industry. But, you know, with respect to your question of, of jurisdiction in terms of geography, I mean, my sense is that these are really consumer protection laws. So if you have a consumer that is located in a jurisdiction, I don't think as a, as a business, you can, you can wash your hands of it. If, if, you know, the paper trail shows that, you know, these advertisements were reaching a consumer in their jurisdiction, then I, I think that, um, you know, my sense from a ge- general standpoint is that it, it is going to, you know, potentially lead to these very international, um, you know, situations and and you can't just sort of wash your hands of liability as a company because you have a consumer in a different jurisdiction. Um, I think, uh, you know, Vic is, is maybe uh, well suited to talk about some of the enforcement given given his past. But uh, I do think we will see and we have to some extent seen, um, you know, some cooperation between uh, the competition in enforcers across different jurisdictions. Yeah. And, and really, just to just to pick up on that, I think 
when you think about it as an enforcer, they absolutely think they have authority. So don't don't ever forget that. And they will test the bounds of what that authority might be. In fact, the, the guidance that the Federal Trade Commission gives says that they do have it. And that's guidance they're giving you is beware, because if you send something, it bounces from Canada to London to California or Washington, D.C., you can guarantee the FTC is going to say you are you are under our jurisdiction now and we're going to do it. And and the states are, are no different. Right. If you've got that social media advertisement or post in California, you can imagine the California AG is going to say it's affecting my consumers. And even if the Federal Trade Commission doesn't do anything about it, I will. So that's the way that's really the way to think about it. If you're an influencer or a, a product producer of any kind, just think about the way an, a, an enforcer is going to think that they have the authority to, to bring you in and tag you, and they will see how far they can push their statutory authority. And and so you don't even want to get caught up in that if you can avoid it. And I think you know that that's yeah. one of the things to really consider. The other thing to point out, that, uh, tagging on to what Aaron was saying, is that absolutely the enforcers talk. I mean, so the Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission, the EC, Canadian Authority, the state AGs, they are always talking, whether it's a competition issue or a consumer protection issue. They have regular meetings, regular discussions. They're sharing information so that if it may not be helpful for someone at the EU uh, or the CMA, it may be helpful for someone in Washington, D.C. And uh, and so don't ever think that there aren't as many lines of communication as possible. I know when I was with the enforcers, it was a regular thing. We had regular calls and regular discussions with other enforcers around the country and around the world. That's just what's going on. <laughs> That's globalization for you, right? And and the classic, uh, I, I like how you refer to these agencies as enforcers, Vic, the classic enforcer tactic of um, aiming for the head, aiming for Kid, Kim Kardashian to send the most public, visible message about what can go wrong for you if you run afoul. I mean, it, it, that would have more impact than 100,000 micro cases against people um, doing, you know, travel influencing on Instagram or whatever it is, just to have the maximum reach. It's sort of the irony of the the advertising reach itself is how much the message from from the enforcers lands when you land it against someone with that much uh, public availability. Let's say. So I think I taking Andrew's point about the regulators kind of going to the head and making an example of somebody. I mean, what we've also seen is the rise of as cancel culture too. And actually, we see a big movement amongst followers at the moment um, where there is an influencer that hasn't made appropriate disclosures. There's a kind of cancel culture or there's a the cancellation movement um, towards or with regard to that individual. And I'm thinking most recently, I don't know if you've heard about Mascaragate and what happened. Um, <laughs> this is the latest one where there was a there was a TikTok influencer who um failed to disclose her connection with the brand L'Oreal about this mascara that she was using, and she claimed it was wonderful. But then there are lots of people saying that she was wearing false eyelashes in the video where she was demonstrating that product. And rather than I don't think there's been any kind of regulatory action per se with regards to that conduct, but actually what we've seen is a lot of consumers. Um, refusing to follow her or cancelling her effectively because of the misleading advertising that she's. So it's having it's having a kind of cultural impact. This you know, if, if this isn't just the regulators coming down, you know, with the with with the hammer on it, we're actually seeing a kind of grassroots movement against misleading misleading advertising too here, which I think is really interesting. 
Well, I think it, it might partly be advert or, or I'm sorry, consumers becoming wise to this, right? And consumers realize that like there was this slow sort of trend where at the, at the beginning, you know, there was this sense that, oh, maybe people are just promoting things without having any sort of like kickback to them. It's just their bona fide uh, review of this product. And now I think consumers are realizing that that's not the case and, and they do want transparency. And I, I think, you know, anecdotally, I think influencers that are very clear and are very transparent with their followers and say, I am getting paid by these brands, but I'm only going to promote things to you that I actually do fully endorse. I just happen to also, you know, have a great partnership with that brand. I think we're going to see people vibe more and and identify more with those influencers who aren't who aren't misleading them. So I think, you know, we all as lawyers come at this from a legal perspective of you want to avoid liability. But I think that there's also a, a reputational thing here, too, for influencers and brands, um, you know, to be to be in a in a positive relationship with consumers where you're, you know, where consumers are, are trusting these influencers to because they really are promoting brands that they um, that they that they identify with that they use themselves, products that they like themselves. You know, but picking up on that, Aaron, I think one of the concerns, though, too, is, you know, we we focus on, you know, say some of the sophisticated, you know, consumers out there, but but children are on this all the time, too, right? I mean, if you look around, the average 12-year-old has a phone and she or he are scrolling through things. And and I know we, we try not to be a parent, but we are in, in a way. And I think that's part of what the Federal Trade Commission is really trying to do, too. It's, and they've given guidance certainly about you know, targeting ads to children and, and, and everything else like that. But your average 12 year old, you know, e even if they see the advertisement uh, logo or not, they, they just scroll right through it. Right. And they're just like, well, you know, so and so did this. So I've got to buy it. I'm going to I'm going to use mom's credit card and I'm buying it right now. And and so there there are certain things, I think, that that, you know, can there are certain consumers of this of the social media influencing that that probably need a little uh, you know, maybe a little oversight. <laughs> and so and so the FTC puts out these rules to try to help at least limit um, some of that, uh, you know, that influence that gets past the average 12 year old or 13 year old. And I do think that raises an interesting legal question as well when we're thinking about the objectivity standards. So, for example, if you're is your disclosure, would it come across to the reasonable consumer that this is an ad? But if your reasonable consumer isn't the the man on the clapper omnibus, as the English judges like to say, it's actually a 12-year-old um, girl. I, to what extent can, can the brands be held to um, the same kind of object, objective standard determining they've had sufficient disclosure in their advertisements? And I think that's a really interesting legal question. I'm not sure it's been tested yet. That, that's true. I, I don't know that it has. But I think, you know, once again, you talk about the reasonable consumer. And, and I think that Federal Trade Commission does recognize that. And, you know, if we go back to the beginning of this of this discussion, really, and talking about common sense, there are ways uh, that you just are open and upfront about the fact that this is a paid advertisement. I mean, Federal Trade Commission gives you language that you can use, right? It's it's not they're they're not necessarily doing a gotcha. It, it's more of, all right, if you're paid for it, just make it known. And if you do, you're probably okay. You know, mm -hmm. if you try to hide it, you try to be tricky with it, you try to use some tiny, you know, font in a different language, it's not going to work. I mean, <laughs> you need to, need to be upfront and honest about it. And I think that that's how you can protect yourself from, from getting into some hot water with Federal Trade Commission uh, in the U.S. or with the state AGs. And you have a, you have a cognizable defense. 
to it if you just if you just say paid by advertised by you know just just don't try to be too tricky and you're probably okay even with kids yeah i agree and i, I was gonna you know i think that was a great that great point to bring up the, the the you know the potential to be advertising to all different ages i think you know the the canadian competition bureau the guidelines uh, in terms of making those disclosures, talk about uh, disclosures being contextually appropriate. So it may be that if an advertisement is really targeted towards younger people, that maybe what is contextually appropriate in that case is, um, you know, as, as Vic said, it, it it's you know it can be a fairly uh, clear formula, but maybe in, in that case, it needs to be, for example, a verbal, uh, if you're dealing with children so young, they can't read, for example, or, uh, you know, it, the, what is contextually appropriate might change if you're dealing with children, and you might need to make it even clearer if, if you know, if the ad is truly targeted to, um, to young people. So I think, you know, that contextual appropriateness point, uh, I think is important to, to keep in mind, but it goes back to, you know, as Vic said, like the common sense and that, that gut check in every case to say, is this appropriate in the circumstances? And the targeting piece is an interesting part of this that's probably fodder for a deeper future conversation, given the way that you can incisively target on social media now in a way that, you know, previously that if you're targeting kids, it's like breakfast cereal commercials during Saturday morning cartoons. But now on social media, you can certainly do a lot more than that to make sure that your content gets in front of the, the age demo that you're interested in or the social demo otherwise that you're interested in, which raises in litigation potentially other questions about what you were going for when you put something out in the world. And in that bracket of what you were in, the, the group you were intending to reach, how clearly you, you know, adapted what you were doing for, for that audience. You guys have given us some really good um, some really good parameters and bumpers around sort of best practices and thoughts on what people can do to protect themselves from enforcer uh, action in this in in this space. And you know maybe I can give a little plug to uh, anybody who's interested in that. I believe there will be a future disputed uh, podcast episode dropping on that topic. We just recorded it with Chris Hirsch, so. Amazing. So that'll be definitely, a, you know, a must, uh, a must listen to episode for anybody uh, in this competition space who's, um, you know, who's concerned with the wage fixing and no poach agreements. That's really a substantial change to the competition law in Canada. So looking ahead, uh, get out your crystal ball. The crystal ball. What do you see are the trends looking, looking into the year ahead, the years ahead? What, what do you expect on the horizon? Well, I do wish I had a crystal ball, Andrew. It would make uh, life and practice easier. I, th I mean, I think in Canada this year, uh, you know, we have a major change on the horizon coming into effect in June 2023, um, which is, you know, the, the changes to the competition law governing wage fixing and no poach agreements. So I think that we're going to see at least for the first half of this year, I mean, the, the Competition Bureau only has so many resources in addition to the, you know, the, the normal merger review that it has to do. It has guidelines out right now, draft guidelines on that wage fixing and no poach agreements piece. It's consulting on that piece. My sense is that for at least the next couple of months, we're going to see a little bit more momentum in that space than we will in the misleading advertising space. Now, that could change. You know, if we had a case like the Kim Kardashian case in Canada, who knows? We could see the Bureau take decisive action, you know, to, you know, as Vic was alluding to before, maybe set a, set an example, make, you know, crack down on, on that type of action. But, you know, barring any, any big events like that happening, I, I see maybe, um, 
a little bit more focus on the, at least in the short term in Canada on that wage fixing and no poach piece, which I think actually makes now a great time for brands to take a little bit of time to look at this social media piece and, you know, get their ducks in a row. Because I think at, you know, at a certain point, once the wage fixing and no poach um, issues have been, you know, sort of ironed out, we may see that, you know, the Competition Bureau come back to, you know, looking at this, this digital uh, space. I think that, you know, we do have to keep in mind, though, that that tech tech companies are certainly of concern for the enforcers. And as I said, you know, Andrew, you you know, you you mentioned the word enforcer versus regulator. I I do think here in the U.S., they really view themselves as enforcers, not they don't want to be regulators. They don't want to regulate everything going on. If they see something, they want to enforce the law. And so they have a very different mindset with it. And the tech companies, you know, outside of healthcare. You know, both the DOJ and the FTC view the tech companies as the as the biggest targets, and so they do that. But as Aaron said too, they have limited resources and they can't tackle everything all at once. They've kind of brought a lot of their cases on the tech platforms now, and I think you know there may be another defendant here or there, but otherwise, social media influencing maybe not so much. As Aaron alluded to, I mean here in the states too, wage fixing, not no poach agreements, the elimination of non competes. By the federal trade or the attempt to eliminate non-competes in all contracts in the United States has got everyone really uh, worked up. And of course, you know the agencies are still supposed to be presenting new merger guidelines in in the U.S. and that's supposed to happen probably within the next month or so. I think so. With those priorities in line and having already brought several tech cases, I, I think that the agencies might be might be stretched a little thin to try to bring too many things on. Against uh, you know social influences or anything else like that, but but once again they have just released this guidance. So there's someone in uh, in the FTC right now who is keeping notes and is keeping track. And and when they have an opportunity, they're going to say you know so and so just said this, and we know that's a problem, and uh, let's make an example of them. I, I, you know, and that's that's certainly possible. I just think that it's going to be difficult right now because they have so much on their plate. <laughs> Well, and at minimum, if they take nothing else away from this podcast, they know that when that phone call comes from the FTC, their next phone call is either to Vic or to you, depending on which side of the border they're sitting on. Guys, this has been... Maybe both, depending on, you know, the jurisdictional questions we talked about earlier. Conference call. Bring it all together. That's what what it's all for. I'm now wondering, Aaron, who the Canadian equivalent of Kim Kardashian is going to be. Is it Justin Bieber? Is it Ryan Reynolds? I don't know. These are questions for a future discussion, um, which I hope we can have because this has been so, so, so useful. So thank you guys very, very much. Thank you for having us. And I do also want to thank everybody who's listening to this podcast right now, because I never uh, expected in my professional career that I would get to talk about something called Mascara Gate <laughs> or use all of my time spent scrolling social media and, and call it research. So, uh, you know, this thank you to everybody who's made this podcast uh, happen. Absolutely. Very enjoyable. And, and you know, I, I think that it's uh, it's just it's always fun to talk about this and, and just kind of a little bit lighter at times than some of the other conversations we have. So I, I enjoy it. Thank you very much for, for the invitation. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Dispute It. If you'd like to find out more about this topic or how to contact our guests, please visit NortonRoseFulbright.com slash Dispute We'll be taking a hiatus for the next short while, but previous episodes of Dispute It are always available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
As always, if you have any questions, feedback, or topics that you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us at disputed at nortonrosefulbright.com. Thanks very much.